Welcome back, pod people, to a brand new episode of Cinema de More. I'm Justin Morgan. I'm here with my uh, co-host. Chuck Phillips. And we have a guest. Hi, Lexi back. Back to take over your show and say too many things. It's okay, because today's show is about too much. <laughs> I know, bad, bad, bad joke, I guess. Bad right. pun. We are... Actually, this is the episode that Chuck was talking about where we're breaking our continuity because we're doing a Hitchcock theme. That's what you're in on. And we decided to split up English Hitchcock with American Hitchcock with a double feature of The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is his 1934 British film that he remade in 1956. An American so movie with uh This was intentional. Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. This episode with the British and the American side of it. Yeah, it a- absolutely was. Oh, it didn't funny. exactly fit into. We usually do everything chronologically, and as you will see, this it really doesn't, because it doesn't fit the, the like, it uh the man who knew too much. Nineteen thirty four would fit between Lady Vanishes and Shadow of a Doubt, and. I think the other the other one is between Rear Window and Vertigo, which is what we're doing. Surprise! I didn't realize that he made films as far back, like thirty four. I was like, shit. He was born a million years ago. Yeah. yeah. He was making actually. Films in I don't know when his. I, I like looking up the old cast to see what they were in. And you click on them on IMDb, and their birthday's like 1890. Mm-hmm. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I guess it makes sense. You're the old person in the 1930s movie. Right. Uh, I saw, like, I did see two. I, and I, like, I've, I come across this stuff because I'm like, what the hell? Uh, in The Man Who Knew Too Much, 1934, there's, like, a sharpshooter assassin. And I just looked to see what he was in. And I noticed that he died. He died uh, three years after this movie. And and it was like at sea, and I was like at sea. He died at sea, <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, maybe it was World War Two or something. And I looked it up, and it said that he was on like a like a cruise liner or something. And he told this woman that if she didn't marry him, he was gonna kill himself. And I guess he killed himself. <laughs> I, I don't I, shit. I, I, I don't know. Right, they said but... that they kind of worded it as if that was more so a rumor, but. It was a story that was out there, hmm. but uh, they said he was probably intoxicated and fell overboard. They've ruled it as an accidental death, not a suicide. But uh, I did realize when I look up people and they've passed away, they're always like, it's like heart attack or something. At sea would be a, uh, kind of a pretty cool one to get. You know, Justin, born in Pittsburgh, dead at sea. I would never want that. That's like one of my biggest fears is drowning. I'm like, no. You could get eaten by sharks and not drown. No, I don't want that either. Death is at sea. (laughs) (laughs) Something eats you. You're like, this is terrible. I don't want any of this. (laughs) Yeah, drowning would be an awful feeling. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. But there's a lot worse ways to go, right? Drowning in chocolate. That's still drowning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't really know. 
I don't really have to. I, I don't. I think a slow death would just be worse. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Slow just any like you know, you're in a car accident and there's like a tree through, <laughs> through you and you're just like, oh fuck! Like we talked. There's we, no we way I'm surviving this. I was like, that's the way. I that's one of the worst deaths I've ever seen in a film is the blob where it just like envelops you and slowly dissolves you. I'm just like, oh god, that looks awful. It's agonizing. Uh, and the worst death I've ever seen was Clerks, where people just worked at a gas station till they yeah. died. That's kind of American life. Yeah, isn't you're just it? describing life in general. <laughs> <laughs> death by life. Yeah. Is it life though? Yeah, probably. It's like that movie, The Heartbreakers, where like the guy dies and he goes to purgatory, and it's literally just him working at a pizza shop. I don't think I've ever watched that, but that's that is kind of what I would feel hell would be at least. Yeah. I don't even know if purgatory would be that. Chuck, don't you think if you died, hell would be like you're working at Lowe's nonstop? Yeah, I wouldn't notice a difference. Because <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think that's how ghosts are. They they're like the Sixth Sense ghosts. They don't realize that yeah, they're dead. They, and they just keep, keep showing up for work. Just keep going there that would really day. suck to be putting in like years and years and years and it's like dude you've been dead for a while <laughs> like what the fuck and i keep coming here <laughs> They're like i thought it was nicer no one ever asked me any questions i just came in for my i was shift wondering why i wasn't getting that promotion <laughs> you don't even go home your st- your yeah. spirit is stuck in lows <laughs> you just think that you you leave lows has been abandoned and shut down it's like 200 years have passed and you're on Ghost Hunters <laughs> with some some version of Ghost Hunters. You're like, I don't believe in ghosts. Sir, we're you go- are a ghost. We're going to this haunted Lowe's. Whoa. Haunted Lowe's. Back when people used to shop in stores. The year Whoa. is 2222, 200 years ago. <laughs> Chuck passed away in the Lowe's, and his spirit still haunts the ground. Got run over by a forklift. <laughs> that you were driving. Yeah. Oh man, I shouldn't bring it up. But there's an awful video of a person getting smushed by a forklift. Uh, I, have you seen that, Chuck? Yeah, probably. I I've have. seen a lot of videos of people getting hit with forklifts and and all that stuff. Uh, the forklift starts to like it's like too heavy or something, so it's falling forward, and this woman like grabs the back of the forklift, like she's gonna be weigh like tons yeah. and be able to weigh it down. She's gonna be the Grinch. She falls on. Just... Un- flip it over she falls underneath of the thing and it falls back on her and i'm like oh my god like but at least that's a quick death if we're gonna talk about deaths i mean is it i guess i mean your head's smushed like a melon you're definitely dead especially hopefully (laughs) your brain smashed but you're like still like seeing things but your whole death is like now a joke on the internet too uh you're probably not gonna care that much unless you're a ghost Every time you like go by a computer, you're like, motherfucker. Uh, the man who knew too much and the man <laughs> who knew too much. There's a reason that Lexi's on this episode because Lexi's podcast talks about remakes. That is correct. And uh, I think it's been a while since we've kind of done a, if we've ever done a remake comparison. Uh, I know we get sequels we in here from time to time. Yeah, uh, yeah, there you go. That's probably the last yeah, one. Yeah, I really don't know we too are. many other times that we've that we did. 
we did we did i was on for um the thing which we only did the the, the thing itself we didn't talk about the original and the but we did the that other on our things. show <coughs> just so you know we are rebranding our show the new name is going to be oops they did it again a remake podcast so please listen to us you get the rebrand and you're keeping the remakes that's right <laughs> interesting yeah you're locking yourself in there i am i okay. am I, I i you know i'm an expert in remake ology at this point so you know now that's why you brought me here for remake expertise yeah Although you got the, re- say, the remake expertise and chuck has the hitchcock expertise i'm really surprised that i think this might be the first film that we've talked about where the director remade their own film although i know that there are plenty of foreign films that get that treatment it's not typical you see like somebody like hitchcock do it yeah it's yeah not i an american know thing. Uh, D.W. Griffith, he made, he did Ten Commandments twice, no, but no, I'll be honest no, with you, I don't no, think I've ever seen no. the first. No, the wrong director. Oh, but I have the but I have the right you idea. You have the right idea. Who's the director? This will be Demille. Ah, oh, close enough. Yeah, man. I actually have that on Laserdisc. <laughs> See, Chuck is the expert. So He's like, no, stop, I'm just trying, yeah. stop talking. I mean, I didn't know where you were going. Uh, I was like, the D.W. Griffith remake, uh, Birth of a Nation. Did I miss that yeah, one? Did birth. There is another Birth of a Nation, no, but I don't no, think yeah, it's a remake. Yeah. It is. It is actually. We've talked about doing it on the show. Is it? Uh, I know that the guy who did Funny Games did the American remake, and it's like a shot for shot. No, there was one a couple of years ago where a guy uh, made something also called Birth of a Nation. I don't think it's a remake. No. And I can't remember his name, and it was taking off, but he had all these like. I want to say, and I don't want it to be hearsay because I don't remember some sexual assault allegations, maybe rape yeah, or something like I can't, that. Something I can't remember right. who, what his name was. I remember Matthew McConaughey's in that movie. They said, oh, this director, he's director something had, special. Yeah. And quickly, you know, that was snuffed out. Yeah. Not in Hollywood. That never happens. Uh, it's been happening since 2017. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> It's the, yeah, the time of repercussions, I guess. The new age, streaming, and I don't know. Powers in the eye of the beholder. I guess. So, I was surprised um, when it was British originally and then American, and I was like, but I didn't realize that that was intentional with you guys. Cause I was like, cause that's my first note that I made. I was like, haha, it's American <laughs> this time instead of, and then instead of going to like the Swiss Alps, they go to Mar- Mar- Morocco. Yeah. Which I was like, all right. So either way, none of them take place in their, their country of origin. They're all, uh, what I find most interesting, I guess, is the, the the only similarity in the plots is it goes back to that Hitchcock theme of the ordinary man being like thrown into this situation. Yeah, that any, anybody could be this character, but there's both in both of them, they are given information uh, 
that is like vital and they have their kids kidnapped and that's like basically the only big tie besides the the orchestra scene i think they're I both think, albert hall yeah yeah i think the first half like the first half of both of these films are the same and i think they differ in their second half and then come back around again with the um the orchestra the so only like, thing that I saw that was interesting, apparently the screenwriter for the American version, uh, Hitchcock paid him on the fact that he like would not watch the original movie or read the screenplay uh-huh. and, and would only write a screenplay based off of Hitchcock's like verbal treatment that he gave him. So I think that's kind of an interesting approach. Yeah. It differs a lot when you just eliminate the like almost thirty minute long gunfight at the end. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Like I'm definitely torn between these two movies because to an extent there's a lot that I prefer in the original. And then in the new one, there's things that I feel like he's obviously gotten better at. Yeah. Well Lon Chaney is excellent in the thirty four one as the the bad guy. With, Peter like, Laurie. Peter Laurie, yeah. I'm now so I sound like Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, what? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Peter <laughs> Laurie was excellent in that role. Like, so in the 34 one, like, he was such a great character. And when he wasn't in the, like, this character was there in the remake, but it wasn't as fun of a character. It wasn't as interesting. And so I was missing that character in particular, but also, like, Peter Laurie just played that character so well. It was like, who's going to really like recapture that again? He almost reminded me of like a Takashi Miike character. Do you know what I mean? I don't. Where he had like that boisterous kind of like Yakuza late 99. He has that weird, like, like his giggle. That's like real weird. Like weird. (laughs) Yeah. And his blonde streak in the hair and like the The vibrant suits and all that kind of shit. I was like, this guy is such a trip. I'm like, this character reminds me of something like straight out of like, 99 like a Takashi Miike 99 like Yakuza film it was like he's a trip and it was such a weird character for a 34 film he has such my favorite moment with him too is when he's in that room and they all think that the assassination took place and everyone reacts but he doesn't he's just cold through it yeah it's such like- a it's such a great moment because your mind actually makes you think that like they all celebrated but if you watch it he doesn't he does not move he's just like it's done i like when he's behind the door <laughs> and they, they think he, everybody's dead and he's like ah <laughs> yeah he's got that creepy voice and i mean obviously uh it's probably the same for most of you but the way that i was like first introduced to him was through like looney tunes yeah where yeah. they made the like the warner brothers animated version of him and a lot of things yeah. Yeah, he was like, especially he was like the doctor with the, the big hairy monster. I can't think of what like that specific character's. Name I know what you're talking Floyd. about. Yeah, I, think it's it's, Floyd, I know it's some I weird like yeah, like a generic like human name or something like that. But yeah. I know, I know that was like his thing was like the doctor sounded. It, it looks like cousin like, it with uh, yeah. sneakers on or yeah. something shoes. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. Great. And it's so weird because when you actually see this person for the first time, I'm like fuck that's the guy that i saw animated as a kid there's all sorts of stuff that's that's fun like that with those old looney tunes like they uh humphrey bogart's in one of them 
and it's just straight up just Humphrey Bogart from uh, uh, like Casablanca or uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre, where he's just like, gee, won't you help a poor American down on his luck or something like that? And that's just his line. He just keeps repeating it. And I can see people at the time being like, that's hilarious. They put Humphrey Bogart in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. You know what? Also, were these the ones, I mean, I know they played cartoons before movies, but were the ones that had these bigger actors in it ones that were being played before movies? No idea. Because yeah. I no, feel like sure. Humphrey Bogart would be like, oh, if he's doing it, it's got to be before the movie. That's an intelligent thought to have, but I don't Possibly. know if they, they thought that way back then. Because I know they did do, they did it for like, I know it was happening as 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 like far back as the early 40s. Because it was happening during World War II. They had, like, World War II cartoons. Yeah, I have a, I have a I mean, few... It could, uh, it could be earlier. A few, a few DVDs. Like, Warner Brothers used to do that more with, I think, some of their DVDs they used to release where it, like... Like, it, it was, like, a Leonard Malton thing, and he'd, like... They, like, reconstructed, like, this is what it would be like to go to the movies in 1942 or whatever to see, like, Scarface or something. It'd be, like, first you'd watch the newsreel talking about, like, World War II. Then you'd watch a cartoon. Then you'd watch this gangster movie yeah they need they do they need to bring that back i mean the closest that they had with a while for with it for a while was pixar having their shorts you don't you don't like the trivia and the the phantom ads at the The worst is i don't even mind like regular ads but i hate the ones that we got it again recently when we went to the dolby theater the one that's like trying to sell you on how good the dolby theater is and it's like Buddy, I'm in the seat with the ticket already, man. You don't have to. Right. You don't have to tell me how good the theater is. I know. I'm sitting in it, watching the movie right now, getting ready for it. Like, stop, stop advertising the theater. I'm sitting in. It's a. It is painful because I go to see a movie like The Batman, which is like, I don't know, two hours, fifty minutes, maybe a few minutes less, and now I have to watch like thirty minutes of trailers and commercials. And Dolby's like a very long one. Yeah. And it gets funny anymore where they're talking about Dolby Vision and how sharp it is and that like how dark the blacks are, but they're really not that dark. So it is funny when it says at the end it's like, "Yes, the projector is still on." I'm like, "It looks like the projector's on." <laughs> it didn't look like it appeared on a black screen. So I think something that's really interesting that I didn't really think about with Shakespeare, or not Shakespeare. I'm so sorry uh hitchcock Uh-oh. is uh he's very funny his movies are hysterical like comedy is kind of almost at the forefront of all of his stories and even though he does mostly like mysteries and like noir style kind of films and even like horror like comedy is always like at the forefront of everything both these movies are very funny there was a lot of like you know like man and in, in like you know, weird situations, just like, oh, what do I do? And it was like very funny, even though the scenarios are very. I, I do enjoy in the first one when the guy like wraps the yarn around him and the, like the whole, like everyone oh on the God, dance floor so is funny. getting like wrapped up in, in the thing yeah. that she's knitting. Uh, and they, yeah, they all just start. And then, then it's like it, but he puts that in like such a perfect moment of like everyone's getting tangled. And that guy's like, hey, buddy, you're getting tangled. And that's right when the shot comes through the window and it just immediately gets serious when the guy's like, and that, that guy's reaction is like, oh, dear. <laughs> Look, I, right. yeah, it, it is a funny. It is funny. His life is unraveling or some metaphor that you yeah. get. Uh, it starts as a joke. Yeah. The, the lack of like a soundtrack 
and like background noise in the 34 one does give it this interesting quality where like it's so quiet for a film like there's not a whole lot of like sound coming out but but then when like you get them it's like they have more impact so it's kind of interesting so when he gets shot it's such a quiet shooting yeah it's like this little it's, like, it, it, it also like, fits oh. into that funny moment where yeah it's hysterical he takes it like a joke like oh shit yeah before yeah. <laughs> he collapses oh he has like a moment i think that the scenario goes down a bit better of how he ends up with things in the 34 one like when the guy gets shot and just gently falls to the floor and then she's like he said that there's like a thing in his brush and then he goes up and finds the thing and reads the thing. And the next thing he knows, like he's been pulled into this. Whereas like in the 56, is it 56? Yeah. And that, yeah. that one, it's, it's like very much like, all right, here's what's going to happen. We took your kid and this is where it's like going to go and whatever. And you're like, I didn't realize the daughter had initially been captured in the, the 34 one until it was like, oh, okay. She got bypassed. I see what happened there. They, they, she was so scared on, it looks like a fucking wagon. Look like they're out <laughs> on a sleigh. Like, yeah. yeah, he stole her on a sleigh. Yeah. Uh, I do think, though, the British, it's extremely British in the first one. Oh, yeah. Where he comes out of the hotel room with the message and they're trying to investigate the hotel and the, like, the police. What are, what were you doing in there? Uh, and he just like, it's like British bullshit. I don't know how to put it. It's just sort of like, uh, uh, I'll tell you about that after I meet the console and they are okay with that. Like it's, it's just a really weird, right. And it never goes back to that. It's sort of like when we had a lady vanishes and they said, oh, we'll all be in the cart for tea time. It's three o'clock. That's where we'll know the Brits are. And I don't think that that's. I don't know. I don't think it's a joke. If uh, or if it is a joke, it's a, they're making fun of themselves. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I thought the daughter looked like she was like twenty. Uh, I don't know. She was still shorter than the rest of them. She's just short, <laughs> and I was like, "Is this supposed to be someone's wife or someone's daughter?" You know, some of the special to effects too. I really thought were great. Like. I'm jumping kind of to the end, but she's on the roof at the end and they have like a dummy up on the roof when it's people on the ground and they have her lit really dark, but it's obviously not moving at all. But I was like, eh, that's actually kind of cool. You know, what I'm talking about Charles. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I like little things like that, even though it kind of jumps back into the, the Hitchcock that doesn't match up perfectly. And I think would drive him fucking nuts. You know how you talked, we're not covering it, but we talked about Rope a little bit and how his unsmooth, some of his transitions were. were. It's like he got pretty close to what he wanted to achieve, but he didn't fully achieve it. And I feel like that's a lot of his like older things too. I know for a fact that he said that he prefers the older one to the new one. He, he said that he likes the raw feeling of the original yeah, more. I think Truffaut said he likes the... Truffaut likes the American remake better because I know that's how he put it in the in the book is that the that he feels they're both good movies uh, but I think he just says like what he says about the remake is like you you can just say that's a movie that was made by someone that had like more experience at making films like I was just a better filmmaker when I made it but yeah I know he still he still preferred some of the original there is like a 
I don't know, maybe it's just the speed of it because it is a shorter film. It's only like 79 minutes versus two hours. So it yeah. does feel like it's, it feels like the situation is more at hand, like it's more immediate, whereas like they space out the American version, which feels like there's times when people aren't necessarily even caring about the plot. They're just like, just like, well, we can get to it when we get to it. And I'm like, I'm like I, I don't there's know. a good 30 minutes before that plot starts. Yeah. Really, yeah. There's, there's more I space. I thought the American the one drags. I found it dragged really hard in a lot of spots. I wasn't as into this one. I'm a big, I'm a big Hitchcock fan. Um, he always surprises me. Like um, when you guys were like, do you want to cover a Hitchcock film? And I was like, okay, I don't know this one. And I'm like, every time I watch something of his, even when it sounds like it's going to be boring, I'm always pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And I found like the, the original 34 one, I definitely enjoyed more, but I would say that both of these are kind of his drier, drier films. He, he does have that dry stuff. he does have that dry sense of humor but i mean i think what he he excels at in the remake is the tension in the in the albert hall scene the music's uh hall yeah, he expands yeah. i feel like it's what's yeah, that he expands that for sure not even just expansion like it's just it feels better like the tension is is uh, miles better and you don't really know 100% how it's going to play out. Uh, I do like these sharpshooters that just have pistols um, in, in both of them. And the shot's like exactly the same from the original one to the new one. Yeah. But I, I do like the idea of like the crashing symbols and these people won't be able to, to hear. Uh, they won't be able to hear the person, the, sh- the gunshot go off. Yeah. When he makes him listen to it and he goes right there, that's when you shoot. He's like, yeah. okay. I do like, and that's a long scene too, because he plays it like three times. He's like, you got it right yeah, here. Yeah, and the new one. Want to hear it again? Let's yeah. go. Even after we, and we've been shown the song at the very beginning of that film too. So that they definitely like want to give you that emphasis in the remake that like, hey, remember, this is going to be very important. They give you that title card that's like the crash of a symbol that uh, messes with an American family. I do have a question for you, Chuck, and I'm sorry you're out of this one slightly, Lexi. No, the ballroom good. dancing in the Man Who Knew Too Much looks exactly, is it the exact same ballroom dance that was put into Shadow of a Doubt, or was Shadow of a Doubt new footage? Because it looks eerily exactly the same. Hmm. I didn't even think about that. I could I could 100% see them him reusing that footage just because they, they, they would have already had it, but yeah, I didn't even think about that, that that he uses that or maybe it's just the same dance it looks like the same uh, type of I mean, dance yeah. it's the same it's they're not that far apart in time period because that was i mean this was 34 and uh what it's 43 for shadow of a doubt yeah so it's like less than 10 years so yeah it's not that far apart in in time frame so that wouldn't surprise me although the only reason i would say he probably didn't use that footage is probably because he didn't have the rights to it technically since it was uh this was a British film and then he moved to America for that film. Like unless the, unless the film company, the production company bought the footage for him to use. I, you I know, know, I forgot. Reshoot it, but. I forgot about this too, but uh, the man who knew too much 1956 is one of like the few movies that Alfred Hitchcock bought and was like impossible to see for like 30 years. He had it like on lockdown vertigo was one of them i don't remember what the other ones all were trouble with harry i think 
And because uh, I remember for a long time, everyone talking like, oh, Vertigo is the best movie of all time, but you can't see it. <laughs> like, like, it's impossible to find. I remember that Vertigo exhibit at, um, was it Univer- yeah, Universal, the Hitchcock exhibit. I used to go to that all the time when I was a kid. You could stand on the arm and do like the perspective shot of you falling off the, the side of the Statue of Liberty. We need to do that. His falling shots are interesting. Yeah. I mean, the number one one I think of is uh, Rear Window, which yeah. uh, we'll get into it more when we talk about that movie. Yeah. But I just think it's 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 uh, it's an interesting special effect where it's like, it looks weird. <laughs> it does not look right. We're going to be talking about Hitchcock next month on our show. And... Uh... We're going to talk about Rear Window on ours as well. Or you get that weird fall that's in uh, Psycho when they go yeah. down the stairs. It's like, I don't know, it looks like a Looney yeah, Tune or something. Like he's slipping on ice or something. <laughs> like it, it doesn't, it's not like a real natural looking fall. Yeah. And then you get to watch it happen again, I think, with William H. Macy in the new one. <laughs> yeah. It's like blue screen with a, with like a harness rig, the falls. And, uh, What's like that? Vertigo. In Vertigo, the fall is. Uh, Blue screen with a harness rig. Cause I still like that shot of his head leg. just like floating there with all like the psychedelic shit. Yeah. It doesn't look that great. Um, I think both these movies had excellent leads. But I thought that the lead in the 34 one was a bit more charismatic. Like he was like really witty and charismatic. Also, the wife wasn't as involved in the 34 one as she was in the the 56 one she became a bigger player in that one so like they wrote her more into the script and they ended up working together through most of that movie to get the kid back whereas like he did everything by himself with that weird friend of his who just gets hypnotized at the church and then like (laughs) that's it i mean although at the end it does come full circle where the mom like straight up yeah uses her sharpshooting skills to take out the other sharpshooter something right but uh yeah that's it that is a great ending, though. That, like, just, like, here, give it to me, taking the gun yeah. off the cops and, like, just blowing the, I think, I blowing think the guy the, off the roof. I think that's the one thing that I that I do prefer about the the remake is mostly just that uh, more of the characters just feel like they are full characters. It really only feels like in the original, it's kind of just going back and forth between uh, the father character and Peter Laurie, like they feel like they're the two characters and everyone else around them is just like uh, a glorified extra. Like no one else really, I'd agree really with feels all that uh, memorable or, or interesting, at least in the, in the new one, I feel like they do try to, and I guess that's where you get the extended runtime of it being a 40 minutes longer is that they're, they're adding in all these other, other characters to do things uh and they add in their mistakes like trying to figure out the mystery yeah well, that, that's an that's another interesting thing to to switch from the in the original like how he has like an actual physical thing that he finds in the hairbrush versus in this one it's something that's told to him so he completely misinterprets it as as he writes it down as if it's a name of for the name chapel and he's like oh, i gotta find a guy named chapel and there just happens to be a guy named ambrose chapel in in britain that he can find and then there's like two of them yeah, i think the, right yeah, the father Isn't and the son, son yeah. like <laughs> and then it's that it's not till somebody else points out they're like they're like oh you, you don't mean the church do you and he's like oh they're like oh we didn't even think about a church and i'm like 
I mean, if you think about it, if you want to go back to that Hitchcock humor, you definitely have Jimmy Stewart that gets bit by a tiger. So yeah. <laughs> that whole yeah, that whole scene's great with the uh, the guys like all trying to grab the the animals. That I feel like I always think the uh, the father's gonna like try to threaten him with the swordfish. Like he picks it up and like st- keeps yeah, waving like it by his cut head. Him in the like neck. He's gonna be like gonna be like hold him down. I'll saw his head off with this thing. Uh, I do. Yeah, I do, I, I, I do like the technology too, where like they keep missing each other, and the way that they have to make their calls. I also essentially like how the call in the beginning of uh, the remake—I don't say the beginning of the forty-minute mark or something—when <laughs> Jimmy Stewart's on the phone and he kind of like gives away way too much information, which is exactly what Doris Day was like bitching about, yeah. which I think is where. Hitchcock gets better is that he finds a way to keep incorporating the same theme into the into a movie and he does it really really well um the scene is funny though where that Frenchman it's like it, it kind of reminds me of um they do it in so many movies where it's like the, the this character is about to get conned or something where in the very beginning of the movie there's an Arab guy that's yelling at them about taking off the kid, taking off uh, the wife's veil. And the guy that like steps in to like set yeah. things straight later doors day sees them like buddy, buddy. And she's like, I think you told that guy way too much information. I don't think he's your friend, <laughs> but I like his, uh, <laughs> they did the blackface on him and he gets stabbed in the back. And I love Jimmy Stewart's reaction, which is like so underwhelming, where he's like, yeah. "What's going on? What's going on over yeah. there?" And he comes over, and apparently, um, that makeup was too good, and it wasn't coming off on Jimmy Stewart's hands, so they they put like like a white powder on Jimmy Stewart's hands, so when he wiped, it looked like he took off the makeup. That's really funny. Also, was... Hitchcock is like right there in that shot, right before he uh, runs over the Jimmy Stewart. It's like one of the quickest Hitchcock. Yeah. Like, you blink and you definitely miss it. I was like ready to point out like how racist that it is again <laughs> that they were like painting people to play ethnicities, and then when he grabbed him and the paint came off, I went, "Oh, oh, okay, he was supposed to <laughs> be in brown face." And, like, I mean, I actually, some that. of them looked looked decent like the guy that was driving the cart looked like he could actually be middle eastern but the guy that was yelling about his wife did not look middle eastern to well, me yeah. at all that's why i was like oh it's just a bunch of people in face paint and then it was like oh he's supposed to be i didn't think that guy had face paint in the beginning he literally just had like a robe on him like it's just a white guy in a robe who who let that little girl show up to like a ski jumping event with a dog not her parents that didn't watch her I'm just like this dog just runs out in the middle of the, like the track and the skier like busts his ass and I'm just like almost breaks. Hey, Hitchcock neck. hates kids. That's true. <laughs> Even really the mom funny. has a mean line about her kid. Yeah, about her like being. Uh, but I do. I prefer the sharp shooting over the the song at the piano, which was an Academy Award winning song, by the way. Really? Uh does he really hate kids? He absolutely hates children. That's wonderful. That's so funny. That's Did why, have... like his one of his favorite scenes was the birds, where all the birds are like literally murdering that group of children <laughs> as they're trying to run for their lives. Does Does he have kids? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did. Have, he did have kids. Yeah. 
Doesn't mean he liked them. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. There's a point they're not very fun, so I completely understand. Yep, and he doesn't like the the police either. I but I you know what I think is actually kind of funny because I think oh is it of the time, or is it that British like not knowing how guns work? Because we talked about in the Lady Vanishes how you have a gunfight and it's like these people look like they've never held a gun in their entire lives. They're like looking forward and firing and like cringing yeah. at the same time, like while they. And fire. then in this one, when they have the big shootout at the end. They're the cops that are just like the one cop like walks up to the door and gets like shot in the head, and then the other one's like, "Oh shit, let's get them!" and they all run towards the door. And I think the guy yeah, takes yeah, out like four more of them. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a, that's the only thing I could like chalk it up to is that yeah, they just don't like yeah. That's the biggest difference between like American culture and anywhere else. Like I, I, you're just so used to it's like it's like what do those guys not know how to handle guns like real men or something like that? Like, <laughs> like, cause it's just, a, it's such a common thing that everyone here just like, you know, people that own guns at uh, like so many people have them that the idea that these people would almost never even be remotely close to holding or, or let alone firing a gun that they're just so confused by it that they don't really know how it works is such a weird, right. such a weird thing. I, I always enjoy in the original one, uh, You'd think at least the cops would have like rifles or something. And he's like, he's like, no, I had to send him to the gunsmith down the street. Uh, he's going to ask the owner if we can have some guns or something like that. I'm like, oh my God, the cops have to yeah. ask like a private citizen to have guns. I mean, they have no authority because even the mailman's like, dude, I got packages to yeah. deliver. I'm, I'm... <laughs> uh, I do like, like, there's things to me that I've just, it's so funny in 1934 when they're trying to take out this would be assassin. And they're like they're like laying in that position on the ground so they have a better better aim. Yeah. But they're not hidden. There there's no coverage. <laughs> and it makes me think of all the old like, you know, uh, the old American wars, the British, and you know we used like the like Native American warfare to fight, where they'd be all like it's a solid line, and they're like the Native Americans are like uh, actually if you hide behind trees you can take out way more more of them than they can take. They, out they of also you. use right. the, the guys like uh, let's grab that mattress off that bed for some cover. I'm like it's not even like a modern mattress like it literally is right. like the consistency of like a that. pillow, and I'm like coverage from what, dude? Like that is not. That's what I was anything. like wondering. That's like what maybe are they the bullets 22? back then weren't that good either. I mean, I though guess that's the thought like, process, but yeah. It does make me laugh though that the sharpshooter that's shooting out of the window, and he has a handgun, but he's also it's like a Ruger or something I think, but it's a block. He, he's got his hand busted out the window, and it doesn't even look like he's looking at what he's shooting, and he's taking them out yeah. like nothing. What what started the gunfight? That was the part that I got lost at. I was like, I'm just sitting there, and all of a sudden I hear gunfire, and I'm like, Oh, they the noticed the uh, this gunfight. They looked out the window and was like, we have company. And it was like two vague police officers yeah, like literally it. <laughs> in the shadows. And then there's yeah. not a gunshot until the guy walks up to the door. Yeah, that was it. That's what it was. Because I was like, this gunfight just like came out of nowhere. And the next thing I know, they're like rounding up guns. And like the whole movie just ends in this like gunfight. I was keep, like, yeah, where it the just keeps going. Fuck Everyone just getting from? massacred in the gunfights like pretty good, too. Yeah. Uh, Peter Laurie is like the best, like <laughs> like unaffected by anything that's going on. Oh yeah, he was uh, great. He seemed maybe the most disturbed when, what is that woman like a nanny or so the lady that gets yeah, shot? Yeah, he's like, oh shit, like shit's getting real. See, I found. I don't the even ending. know how they shot her. 
Like, I think the ending in the 56 one made more sense for what kind of film, like where it's like a spy-ish type film. And that kind of had like a sort of more spy oriented conclusion the way it ended. Yeah, going to the embassy. But, yeah, but like, I don't know, man. It's not the same as like a 30 minute <laughs> pointless gunfight in the middle of the street. I do think, though, that the music aspect of it, like on paper, is a better idea because the whole assassination takes place around that symbol crash. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it is. Not as subtle, but the way that the mom plays that song on the piano to, like, get her son to whistle along or whatever. Almost wish that guy, like, shot that kid in the head where he just, like, had the gun on him. The lady that, like, trying to play a hero as if she didn't absolutely kidnap that child. There, there's another another good comedic moment that we haven't talked about yet, but uh, that I really enjoy. And I do think they do it better in the in the remake is the church scene. Because uh, in the original, it it seems like, well, first off, those two guys just stick out even more in like the original than they do in the in the remake. Uh, but I like how they play it. It's played a little better in the '56 version, where they come in and you know they immediately recognize uh, that woman, Mrs. Drayton, and she recognizes them. So then it's that that whole awkward thing. But I do just love uh, six foot three Jimmy Stewart that just sticks out like a sore thumb, and they're like, get behind the pole. And when she she tries to like motion for the for her husband to look out in the audience and he looks up and you just see this guy standing behind a pole like it's so cartoonish <laughs> yeah. and it's just like but he doesn't notice and he's just like he's just like I don't know what my wife's on about. Uh, There's just a bunch of people out there. There's a dude behind a pole like he doesn't realize at first. It's it's also slightly funny when they make that confrontation and they're making the eye contact and Jimmy Stewart definitely puts a puts a tip in the bowl or, you know, he puts his donation <laughs> yeah. in there. I do it. Yeah, I do enjoy how that's played. Uh, in the original, that's one of like the goofier scenes with the whole like, uh, I I don't know the hypnotism thing. Such a weird random thing to that put in so there. Weird. To first off, he makes them sun worshippers, which just feels like such a such a weird outdated yeah, was, thing. For them, the to church be. was so strange. Yeah, it, it, Everything about the church was in weird. the original. Yeah, it's so bizarre. Like that whole scene. Although I do love how it ends with just uh, that guy just smashing chairs all over everything. Like he just tears that place up single handedly, pretty much. And they, the the only way to wake up his buddy that's sleeping is to smash a chair onto him. That was so weird. Every and then they had the church again in the remake, but it wasn't as weird. It, it just seemed like a regular church. Remake. And, 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 except, and, except Hitchcock does have these small details that like make you suspicious right off the bat, and I thought the fact that they had folding chairs and not pews added to when the police showed up and they were confused and they're like, there were like forty people in there, <laughs> like they don't like as if that church is <laughs> definitely not operational. Yeah. Also, like them clubbing uh, Jimmy Stewart on the head with that weapon that I I don't think exists anymore. Billy Club, yeah. I also do like him. Like, I gotta get to my kid, and there's like all those people behind the door, like ready to like attack him. I feel like he, in both of these films, that for for men who had their children stolen, they don't take anything super seriously. Yeah, I like, I thought that uh, Jimmy Stewart's reaction was was super serious, and I kind of like the idea of uh, it. Honestly, remind like. I feel like that emotion was carried over into hereditary, you know, from the last couple of years. 
of he gets the news about what happened and he doesn't know how to like talk to his wife about it. He doesn't come off as blank and as devastated, but like he doesn't know how to tell her. And he's he like, needs to drug like, her first. Yeah, I got to give you your medicine. And he's, he's trying like, to like lick her up. You're being hysterical. And she's like, I don't think I'm being hysterical at all. He's like, yeah, well, you don't know how you sound then because you sound hysterical to me. Right. And the, the comparison to the hereditary was how he kills his sister and like goes home in like shock yeah. and doesn't say anything to like his mom. I felt that that was like, it doesn't feel natural, but like in the situation, I can, I feel like the panic and the situation itself might make a character not do something that, you know, somebody that's thinking who's in the right, like right mindset might do. Yeah. But I also do like his, uh, his big conspiracy films too. It's not just that the protagonist can be you, but that anybody that is an enemy could be any single one of these people. Like the lady that's like the first time you see her, the I guess like the new nanny-esque person is when they get off the plane and they're all excited about Doris Day. And she seems like she is a fan, but like uh, like she's super creepy. Like she's just there to be on like the lookout or that something. Girl looks like she oh, always yeah. just got out of a rainstorm. <laughs> like, I don't know if just, yeah. just she was, like, real greasy and, like, uh, if they, they just made her up to look like that. But, like, every time they show her, she just looks like she just walked in from a big uh, big storm outside. And she is at the fake church, too, playing the piano. Yeah. I thought that the church marm character was better in the 34 one, but I was skeptical if it was being played by a man or not. I was like, I don't know about this. I don't know if this is really a woman. I'm like, she's awfully hard looking. <laughs> That's just how women look. So people look like in 1934. Yeah. <laughs> That's always my reaction. It's, <laughs> but, a, it's the same well, as like, like, why does the kid look like she's 20? That's just how they looked in 1934. I, well, I was like, that was it... a kid, by the way. That like, it definitely was a child. <laughs> I was like, is it that, or is it like that they used male actors to do every role way back in the day, and they were just like, oh, you're thinking a... Shakespeare Day? Yeah, I'm like going back. I was like, it's British, you know. Is it all men? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I I don't know. Like, <laughs> could be. Yeah. She had a lot more lines in the remake, but she was much more intimidating in the original. Great actor playing her, though. Yeah, he definitely. Yeah, I mean, I what what do you think Hitchcock learned between films? Like, what uh, else did he ex he excel at? I think his use of color. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's like, yeah. <laughs> he had zero color, and then he went to color. Well, I understand. Vista Vision. I understand the original is black and white, and that this is a color film. It's not just that it's a color film, but his use of color in the movie is excellent. Like, he's really good at like the the way that he uses like the reds of the the hotel and like the outfits and the way that he contrasts Stuart properly and the lighting and everything. It's really good. Whereas he lights the 34 one very well. It's not, it's not one of those films where you can tell like they didn't know what the fuck they were doing with their lighting, but like 
he works with what he can kind of thing. Whereas like in this one, you can see that his use of color from that time period is excellent. Like he really seems to understand how to use it properly. Yeah. I, th I think the other thing that he, that he did better, or I guess got better with, uh, by the time he did the remake is he definitely inserts a lot more, uh, inserts like a lot more of those dramatic tension building moments that I think work really well throughout yeah. this film. Like from the very beginning when, uh, his wife's like real paranoid when she first sees the the Mrs. Drayton character who just keeps staring at her and she's she's constantly telling him you know I don't know something about this is weird and when the like when that guy first shows up the assassin and he he comes to their room and sees Louis Bernard way in the back and then he's just like oh I think I have the wrong room but like they film him real sinister even just from that little moment uh, and I also I also enjoy the uh, when he's going to Ambrose Chapel, and you can hear the footsteps, and at first it just seems like they're they're perfectly in sync with his footsteps. So you think he's just uh, you're just hearing the echo, and then he stops for a second, and then it's like out of sync. So he knows for sure that someone's definitely following him the whole time, which ends up just being a red herring because it's just that random guy. But uh, he gets super suspicious of that guy like following him. That that fake looks at his yeah, watch, pretends, pretends to look, and that guy keeps staring at him. He's real suspicious of him. So. That's that's the other thing I think he got better with was just uh just building those those real tense moments. Cinematography is excellent. Yeah. Like, I also feel like in that in the original he there you can tell the limitations, and I I don't quite understand if it's just like the camera was too big, or it was harder to pull the focus. But some of the shots like of the uh, the sharpshooter on the roof, they're very weird. Like as if the character doesn't have a lot of room to move around the close-up shots of yeah them. uh the far away ones aren't aren't that bad but like i when you're talking about color i think he does a really good job in the new in the remake matching up that like the backgrounds that's yeah you know clearly shot like it really well you like you can tell that you can that, tell that it's a screen that's, you know, running an image across it, but that ending shot when he kills the the character that you know, the, the fat dude, and he falls down the stairs, and they have that shot that's like the the above shot down to where he died at the bottom of the stairs. That's so well done. And it's like he just cocks the camera just a little bit to like so it's not a full you know what I mean? Like it's it's the angles are excellent in this movie. Like he's really good at using like the camera much better in this one whereas exactly what you're saying in the 34 there's a lot of wide shots in 34 like he just kind of like puts the camera in a spot and leaves it there and lets the actors work the room and doesn't really like shift it around whereas in this one the camera works much more dynamic there's a lot of cuts there's a lot of jumps there's a lot of like using uh real close-up shots and stuff i think the bus shot at the very start of the film when they're riding the bus looks really good even though you know it looks like you know it's fake, like they're just sitting on a soundstage kind of thing, but you're like, this looks really great. Like he tightens that shot up really nicely and like gives it that confined feeling of being on a bus, while still oh having the shot be open and that kind of stuff. So I think he like, as a director, understands like what his composition of his films need to like improve upon them. But I don't think that the '56 film improves on the story any. I think like it just kind of drags it out and looks better and has a lot more like like as a as a filmmaker it's a much more competent film from a filmmaking standpoint but like i think that i prefer the 34 one because the the rawness of it is better i think it's 
got some really strong acting points and I, I think it pushes the story along a little bit better than definitely the, yeah definitely one. a quicker pace that like like i said that's that's where i feel like it just feels like everyone's like in the moment actually trying to get something done whereas in this film it does feel like there's parts where people are just like uh we'll, we'll see later uh how this turns out yeah poor hank he's witnessed like two murders too <laughs> he's only eight yeah and also what's the deal with every all the americans like the american family they all have like short names What's the motif there? Why are all their why they all have we all shorten their, names. their names? Hank from Henry, Joe from Joanne, and and Ben from Benjamin. Everyone has a shortened name. I think that was just the thing at that time. Everyone's or like it's so American. It's like it's like the American thing to do. Yeah, I don't know if that's like a the whole family's like got to be like, that way. Like, yeah, I don't know if that's like a Hitchcock thing of like. Of like, yeah, Americans do short and short and fast. Like they don't, yeah, they don't have long names like Louis Bernard. I don't know. I like the little girl more than the boy. I thought that she was like more. She was definitely. I, I you, didn't, you didn't like him because he's annoying. You could just he's say annoying. it. You, you, you're trying yeah. to just act like you you didn't just hate because he was annoying. He was in the movie more. That's why you didn't like him. <laughs> he was. He was very. You had, you had to deal with more of him in this one. Uh, and all I think he did I just like the way that they were talking to the girl too where they're like don't have kids i'm like oh my god yeah sit right th- in front of your kid i think they did a better job in 56 though of showing the meaning of the relationship to the parents that the kid had whereas like in the 34 one it was his daughter but i didn't feel as deep of a connection to them that's yeah that's that's the only thing i think you run into and again we kind of brought this up with uh when we did our lady vanishes episode that I think that's just a trait very specific to uh, films in England and that kind of like attitude. They all, all the British people have to have like a very like cynical, like not, I don't know if I want to say detached, but they're they're always like, they don't show emotion or something like that. And that's, that's very much like uh, in the lady vanishes, all of the characters that are like, don't want to get involved and all don't care that a woman has been kidnapped or murdered or just, they're all the British characters that are like, Oh, well, what's it my business to get involved in a, in some sort of incident like this. I just want to get home for my cricket match. Like, like they're all very yeah. like cold and unfeeling. And the only characters that actually want to help are like the American characters who actually have emotions and, and want to get invested in things like this. And I feel like that does play out a little bit in the, in the original version, like how you're saying, Justin, where they're like, they're just like talking about like yeah whatever kids are terrible like i don't really care about mine like if she was gone i wouldn't really care that much but it's like so you get like the american version in 56 where they're much more like like no he's our son like he's our favorite person like we don't know what we'd do without him his name's hank his name's hank, Where's hank at? sorry uh he's been kidnapped yeah my fiance is picking up a DoorDash order, so there might be some noise here. I'll try not to talk while she's getting. I like, yeah, he definitely talked to me, but he spoke in French, and I don't yeah, know. I don't French. understand a word of that language. <laughs> That's a very, yeah, that that feels like a very American sentiment. I'm traveling across a foreign country, and I, don't learn and I only know yeah, English. I don't learn any of the language. So, which one, if you could only pick one, which one would be your choice, Chuck? If I if I was going between two of them, it's a weird one that I feel like I do feel like he does a lot of things better in the original version. But I do still uh, even just for like the characters and maybe just like 
the overall view of the film, I do still prefer the the remake. I don't know. There is, there is something about just it is such a well made film that I'll overlook the fact that he he still did some things better in the first one. I I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. I I feel that I, I tend to like. I'll actually be right back. I'm sorry. It's okay. I do like the rawness of the of the original, but I definitely think that the remake, especially the scene in Albert Hall, like the 10 minute scene of just the orchestra playing. And I've read that they had actually had um, lines for Jimmy Stewart, but they cut them because it just took away the tension. It was just like too talky. And I guess it wasn't necessary. It was just Jimmy Stewart saying, like his plan like we have to stop the assassin or some shit like well, that look here the assassin's gonna shoot the prime minister <laughs> yeah we gotta we don't know where he's gonna yeah, be yeah i, don't know. I like, feel like that that's that whole scene is is better for just being basically silent just having the music play over everything and everything's just mimed out yeah i mean i like that and i, I i've always liked the espionage type movies where anybody could be the villain and I really think that it does a good job of not just that scene, but the entire movie of not ever knowing who you can and can't trust. Yeah. The The Drayton's remind me of the old couple from Rosemary's Baby. You know, like yeah. it's they're not they're just off yeah. a, enough that makes you question. That's almost them. like the problem in this movie is like when as soon as you see Peter Laurie, you're like, well, of course, that's the villain. It's look at his face like, you know, like that's that's got to be the bad guy. Like, just just look at how terrible he is. <laughs> I, I that's another thing though i don't know if it's a fair assessment because i think he was always the villain in these looney tunes stuff yeah. that i watch so it's like his i mean he is he's always a villain i can't think of him being a good character i mean not yeah not that i can really think of in any of these movies yeah he's always he's like a gangster or a killer yeah. of some sort he's never a good person yeah, uh, I do love too. He, he uh, Hitchcock loves his his like funny perspective shots, which I love the the symbols hanging in the air, which is like the POV yeah. of the guy holding the symbols, and it's like you could just tell it's it's just the symbols being held up by like a fishing line or something. It's just just that shot. Yeah, out I noticed audience. that too. There's no hands in There's that no shot. Hands. He just does like literally just symbols hanging in. The, it looks like it's a like, VR. I game. wonder. Okay, this is what I wonder. It does. It oddly is. It oddly feels like a a futuristic VR game. I love it. But my thoughts are, how did they, like, I feel like the shot should have been tighter with the, with the symbols like just on the outside, so you couldn't see hands. Yeah, that but would they're make in more far sense, enough yeah. that you can see that they're just hanging. Yeah, that there. would make more sense to have it like closer, like a more actual POV shot uh, of those yeah. hanging there. He does that, and then he. Do, I I do love the the shot of the killer in the in the new version like he does that that classic like his face is way in focus way at the back of the frame and then the guns pointed like so far forward but he keeps like everything in the same level of focus yeah you're gonna have to unmute yourself <laughs> i i muted you no you're good uh i would pick the 34 one out of the two of them, I think the length is just better. Like, I just prefer, sh- I, like, I don't know, I'm starting to like these old movies just because they're so damn short. <laughs> I'm like, I'm tired of like dedicating like hours and hours of my time to these things. But I also, like I said, like, 
I really liked Peter Lorre. He was really good. He was really like interesting. I really liked his character. I thought that the main guy was excellent. I really liked him. I thought that there was much more like weird, witty banter. And I don't know. It just paced itself better. I, I don't know if I think the, the, the shooter at the end was necessary, like how I would have ended it. I thought it was just a bit weird, but like they're all pretty much the same film in a lot of ways. It's like one's just in color American and better shot, but I think that they're all both essentially the same film. So it's interesting that you said like the person who wrote it was told not to watch the original. Cause like, they were pretty much spot on in regards to that. I, so. I kind of feel too. It's it's like I I don't know if it goes back to limitations or anything, but was sometimes the way that Hitchcock builds tension, like at the end with the guy on the roof chasing the girl, and it's like a Michael Myers type thing where yeah. he should definitely be able to go faster and catch that girl, but like to build the tension, they make it really slow. They could have had him like slipping on the roof or something where it was just slightly more dangerous, but they don't. I mean, I think that's also one of the small, like imperfect shots in that movie too. When the girl's walking on the ledge and it's like moving, like it shouldn't move. But, um, I, I have, I like, and I, I feel that since I don't a hundred percent understand the culture and the culture of that time, it kind of has like a little bit of a of a safety net where things don't seem weird because I'm like, oh, maybe that's just tradition for them. Ooh. Well, it's back. I'm back. Well, that was weird. I <laughs> uh, yeah. For those at home, uh, Lexi was flashing in and out for a second. Now you flashed out I on muted. my screen. <laughs> I clicked the camera icon trying to mute my thing. So. Yeah, you disappeared off of my screen entirely. <laughs> Did you get kid cuisines? Oh my god, that's fantastic! <laughs> I just like Chuck going, "Whoa!" Yeah. You shocked me there. Disappeared like a magician. At least he came back. You're good. You're fine. Pulled the door open and and shot herself and fell. <laughs> yeah. Um. Overall, I think it's Hitchcock. I mean, I know this is considered his remake, but he does keep re-exploring the same ideas so much that I think unintentionally he just gets sharper and sharper and sharper with it. Right. And I do love how he kind of has that thing that Kubrick did too, where when he was talking to the screenwriter, it's like, here's my treatment. I'm giving it to you verbally. And whatever you remember is like what, you know, the most important stuff because it stands out to you. He's definitely a genre director, like whether he intended to be or not, he definitely found a niche and stuck with it and made his career off of doing essentially the same kind of thing one way or another. He pushes his films more one way or the other with like Psycho more one direction and then like North by Northwest in the other direction. But like he pretty much follows the same formula. It's like his themes, though. It's his themes that he just keeps a doing again and again well, and again and again. And that's how you and become I, a master is by repeating and doing I am now a master. I mean, if you just keep doing the same shit over and over, like no one's complaining. No one's like, man, I wish Hitchcock had tried some different things in his career instead of doing the same thing. It's like, no, Hitchcock made the best of those genres. And still you know, to this day, he's hailed as the best of those genres. So he did something right, right? Listening to his interview with Truffaut too, it's, it's funny where like, 
he was like, oh, at the time that I was doing uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original, uh, he's like, I, you know, I never was really considering what was good and what was bad. But at the time, you know, if you would have asked anyone, they would have been like, oh, that Hitchcock, he's a failure. He's like, he's basically making a bunch of bombs right now. And Eddie's like, I don't know if it would have been the end of my career or or not. And the kind of like the, the ideas that he was playing around with, which is I think the, the main one that I brought up already on this episode is what can the everyman, the everyday man do? And that's like a, like the biggest theme in that first movie is like what can these characters do without the help of the system you know the police don't do anything it's it's literally the parents that that take matters in their own hands and and solve the problem themselves also side note hitchcock which uh, hitchcock and Truffaut essentially the first podcast of all time <laughs> uh hitchcock is such a bad speaker <laughs> that i mean i i obviously highly recommend the book that just like cuts to like the main parts of the conversation but he's he's like uh i think and i'm like he's talks slower than i do <laughs> <laughs> that's why it was like wasn't it like 16 hours or something like time. that of, also the interpreter the entire time i'm thinking oh my god this is uh this is quite a feat do you think he's deserving of the credit that he's been given over the Master years? Suspense? Uh for sure. Yeah, I think we we kind of talked about it in our in our past couple episodes like the impact uh that he's had that you still to this day see so many films that have either entirely ripped his style off. We talked about, you know, Brian De Palma, largely his entire career is about even in some films shot for shot ripping Hitchcock off in his films. Um, uh, the, now that we're talking about the man who knew too much, uh, another film we talked about before with Giallo's the girl who knew too much, which is credited as the original Giallo and is a reference to this film, which that's what uh, I know it's where a lot of people then credit that, that he was the inspiration for a lot of those Italian directors uh, coming up with their crime films. But adding in those kind of like psycho almost adding like psycho elements into his more like uh espionage type thrillers almost do you think he's deserving of the horror credits that he gets i i I, yeah i don't agree that he's i feel like he only ever truly made like one or two actual horror films which is basically psycho and the birds I don't feel like any. I don't of his... even think Psycho is really a horror movie. I think it's like a psychological thriller. It's, at yeah, best. It, it's close, but not. Uh, I mean, it has the slasher DNA yeah, in it. It's so... the inspiration for that, so it's like that's the only. But yeah, I, yeah, I do agree. Like that, he gets lumped in as like a horror director when I don't think he. I wouldn't consider him really horror. Uh, I think it's the idea of his television show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah, that, that maybe where they. They take more like Twilight Zone ideas, but a lot of them are more realistic. So I feel like a lot more of the horror elements fell into that. Yeah. But it wasn't necessarily him. It was his name's just on it. Yeah. You know, slapped on it. I used to love that show. I used to watch it all the time. They run it on Canadian television constantly. So when I was growing up, I watched it all the time. It was just always on. I, but I I think that's where it came from. And then if you think of something like Psycho that had all those sequels, and it's. 
he didn't have anything to do with them. I don't think. No, I don't even know if he was a producer on I any of them. So. I think I don't think he was. I was about to say. I, I don't know. I don't know. He, yeah. <laughs> I think they, I think the second one came out in like the eighties. Yeah. I think, oh, yeah, I think, so. yeah. He Hitchcock didn't seem like the healthiest, but um, I watched uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much 34 on the Criterion Blu-ray, and there's a thing with Guillermo del Toro talking about it, and he's like the perfect example of a person that was highly inspired by Hitchcock because he said that he had written a book in Mexico and Spain that was all about Alfred Hitchcock like his entire career and everything. And after he had done that book where he basically had done a study on Hitchcock, he's like, then I went out and I made my first movie. Like that's where he had the confidence to make that first movie. And it makes me think of all those French new wave directors like Truffaut that started off as critics essentially and said, I think we can do this. I think we can do it better. Nice. And they, they kind of, with little means, were able to make some pretty good movies. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Didn't know if you had more to go along with that. Yeah. Yeah, we're just letting you drive the boat. <laughs> where are we going? I don't yeah, thought, I thought, I thought <laughs> you knew where we were going. Where I, I was following you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I I think this is like a this is a good I think middle film. Even though we did kind of go out of out of chronological order, because I feel like this is a good example of how his style changed. Also, just largely because he came to America, which I know that's uh, that's why I think like when you talk about like some of the things that he was limited with doing, like setting up a doing camera shots. I I know that's why he talks about in the book about getting out of the British film system because it was more limiting than he knew he could make more in, in America. If he could just get to Hollywood and make films there that you know, whatever budget he was being given in, in the UK of, Hey, here's your money. It's like, Oh, well I want to do this shot. Oh, we absolutely do not have money for that shot. Like you put the camera right here and it's a wide shot. Like you don't do anything <laughs> else. Like yeah. we don't have the money for it. We're not giving you any extra things for it. So I feel like that's largely and maybe why something like this film interested in him doing a remake to just, uh, and that's, that's maybe where you get where this film can be too long in places because it is just him showing off. Like, see, this is what I could have done in 34. If they would have just given me some money to work with. Like I, I could have done these cool shots and these effects that what's I love. What's his attachment to this film that he felt the need to remake it. You'd have to ask yeah. him. I know they try. He it was on the table to remake around the time that Shadow of a Doubt came out, and they pushed it back like another ten years. I don't think he ne ever necessarily knew what he was going to do next, so I, I don't really know how it came about that he thought, "Hey, let's let's actually do a remake of this movie. Like, let's revisit that theme." Huh. I imagine it's something that he just feels that he didn't get it right the first time. That's, That's why fair. he keeps trying again. I mean, maybe, again. yeah, maybe it was something like the end. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he also didn't like the that it just turned into a shootout because he never really does that in in any of his other films. Just turns it into a. No. You know, he always has a more clever way to end it. So I could I could even see it being something as simple as that is just that he didn't like the way it ended. Like he felt like it should be a smarter ending. The shootout was based on a real event with William Churchill. Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill. I know. I knew it since it came out of my mouth. 
So I think, I don't know if that was his idea or the Brit's idea to like, <laughs> you know, incorporate that into his movie. But obviously when he had the option to cut it out, he did. Yeah, so because that's a lot, that's like the kind of the biggest, like for the most part, this movie does follow a lot of the same plot points in the same order. That That is yeah. the largest departure is that the end after the church scene and after the after the Albert Hall scene, it turns into a absolutely. It turns yeah. into a completely different ending there. That that's the biggest difference between the two. And so that that is kind of I would I feel like is probably the biggest reason is just that he felt like it didn't end right. And there you go. Yeah, yeah. I think he summed it up pretty well. See, Chuck can when he wants to. Yeah, yeah. He had a lot to say this episode. I think this is the most you've ever talked on an episode that I've been. I'm on. excited for Hitchcock. I feel, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. Go. Depending on the thing, uh, like I said last year, I went and watched all 50 of his films in chronological order and ranked them all. So oh, nice. <laughs> maybe for your Hitchcock yeah. month, you need Chuck. Right. I'm surprised you guys aren't doing. Uh, are you doing Psycho? Yeah, um, that's probably going to be the first or second yeah, one. That's, I'm not sure the order. Exactly. That that uh, that I guess feels like a good. Uh, I guess a good example of I, I still don't I know Gus Van Zandt uses the excuse of that it's an experiment he likes to not say that like that he was doing something with that film like that he purposely shot the entire thing in just a shot yeah. for shot style to to show that see I made this movie terrible because I'm not Hitchcock and I'm like is that really like is that really <laughs> I worked with somebody whose very first movie was Psycho and they're like, oh, wow. not the uh, original. I'm like, of course not the original. You'd be like really fucking old right now. If it was the original one. Yeah, that's a, it's. A, I don't know. I like I said. I know that's the the answer that he gives when people ask him why he wanted to to remake that film. But it's such a it's such a weird idea that his whole plan was I, to show that you needed to be someone. You needed to be a genius like Hitchcock to make a movie like that. And that if you use the exact same script and the exact same shots just with different actors and a different crew that it would be not good. And it's like, well, you succeeded. It's not good. I think it no. comes down to honestly, um, the expressions of the characters Yeah, because you get real reactions in the, in the original. And then in the remake, you're getting people that are trying to mimic yeah, those that have reactions. Seen the movie and, yeah. Seeing the movie and are just trying to do the same things. Basically. I think uh, we're, we're going to do disturbia to go along with rear window. Yeah. That was a good one. We brought that up for being kind of a another one of those plays off Hitchcock's uh, ideas. Because it's definitely a remake of it, but it just does it with like a teen under house. Uh, the other one's Rope and Birdman. <laughs> that, that, that's the real... My, my favorite remake... Rope in 1917. And what was... Uh, we, we discussed our favorite remake is probably Strangers on a Train and Throw Mama from the Train. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely I the was best one. To do that it's a, one. That's a perfect like side by side comparison because they're both. I I love Throw Mama from the Train. I think it's such a funny movie. That's a great movie. It's such a good yeah. play on, on strangers on a train in such a comedic fashion. That sounds also. Um, we have the toy train in Man Who Knew Too Much, nineteen thirty four. And unless I'm wrong, maybe no train in the American no remake. The remake. They, yeah, this is our first Hitchcock movie without a train. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought the kid's toy was clever, like a clever way to sneak it yeah. in. 
and then it wasn't in at least unless it's something really subtle that I don't, I don't think, yeah I don't you think know. so I don't think there's a train in it at all he couldn't get that and he tried as much as he, he tried to get everything but he couldn't get the train uh, there's not a train in the next one I don't think uh, well there's not much <laughs> there's only one setting in the next one <laughs> a wheelchair yeah. that's that's <laughs> like a train it's like a train with one car <laughs> I love Rear Window. I remember the first time seeing that movie when I was a kid. I was like, what a fucking brilliant idea. Like, guy's trying to stop a murder when he's stuck in a chair in a room. He can't physically move or go anywhere. Or, do or maybe he's wrong about the murder. <laughs> maybe he, it's <laughs> not what true. he saw. It's, it's It could be anything, but it's an enjoy. I like that. Well, I like that we... I'd say one of the most parodied uh, Hitchcock things ever. Like, I can't think. I can't Love think. his camera, too. We'll yeah. get into it, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Every telescope camera that yeah. he. It's just creepy. It shows parody it. I've seen, like, Family Guy's done it a bunch of times. Simpsons have done it. Like, like you name it. Like, everybody parodies that movie. It's some of the most parodied shit. Yeah, we've inadvertently set ourselves up for a uh, our Jimmy Stewart streak in the middle of our Hitchcock streak. <laughs> Yeah, we did. Been on all, all of his Jimmy Stewart it, we, films. Now it's funny because you're like, oh, how sophisticated of you to plan the the English side and the American side, but we definitely didn't plan the Jimmy Stewart streak. Yeah, that just, it just happened because he's it. I mean, he's in some of Hitchcock's best. I films. mean, we could have done North by Northwest, but yeah, great movie. It, it didn't happen because we have 50 movies to choose from, we and only get six. Yeah. I'm sure we'll. I'm sure we're gonna get to a, uh, to a part two. A of great this. train movie, yeah. 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 We'll we'll get to a part two on Hitchcock. I'm sure because there's, uh, yeah, he was just one that we had. There we had too many to pick from. Well, we also have to do like legit Psycho that we've never done. We've talked about Peeping Tom. Yeah, we did. Which I think those would be a really good, you know, two episodes yeah, to listen to back to back. But yeah, his the filmography. Like I would, I would ex- like to talk about Frenzy, which is like late in life Hitchcock that I think is decent. It's kind of like our show where with so many Stephen King films they remake that we have to do an entire another month of Stephen King remakes to cover all the Stephen King remakes. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about it. Like, Stephen King is another one where it's like, we could cover, not even just remakes, we could keep covering his movies, things based off of his uh, books over and oh, over God. and over again. Because endless. when you're one of the most popular writers, ev- like, everything gets made. Yeah. yeah. The minute he writes a new novel, everyone's like, uh, like that that um, If It Bleeds novel that had the, well, it had the four shorts in it. I think every single one of them got optioned off. And the one I'm ecstatic about is Aronofsky owns the rights to the life of Chuck, which was the best one. And I know he went to go make the whale. So I don't really know if it's something that's going to happen, but what's the whale? Uh, you would probably love it. Uh, it didn't come out yet. I think they just maybe wrapped up filming. So maybe it's something you'll see pop up at the end of the year. But it has something to do with uh, Brendan Fraser being like extremely overweight, like a uh, six hundred pound lifer, so, you know, something like that. Oh, that movie! I am so excited about that. I know. Exactly so here you what get your uh, yeah, Brendan yeah, yeah. Fraser, Fraser, 
uh, Renaissance period, second Renaissance period. I think I think he'll get an Academy Award for it. I think it'll be his like first time because like the combination of him with Arnofsky and the the subject matter, I think it's gonna it's gonna win something. It'll definitely get nominated. If it doesn't win, I'll be surprised. Yeah, in his last couple movies, like he kept getting some sort of nominations. Yeah, he's a top director right now. People are looking at him. I mean, Black Swan walked away from the fucking awards with everything. So I mean, the dance choreographer walked away with Natalie Portman. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> he did. It's true. Yeah, that's a. It's like another one that it's like I I don't know. Times have changed, and it's interesting to have the modern directors talk about their influences as far as like past filmmakers go. And Hitchcock sounds like a person that like everyone throws out there, but um. I mean, I do see it in some of the works, like Guillermo del Toro's newest one, Nightmare Alley, which is based off of uh, another Nightmare Alley. So there's that's a remake. It feels very Hitchcockian to me, but obviously, like I don't feel the Hitchcock in Pan's Labyrinth. No. No. <laughs> I mean, I think the most Hitchcock non Hitchcock movie is as. Uh, charade that definitely feels like if you slapped alfred hitchcock's name on it people would be like yep that's an alfred hitchcock movie yeah i think i don't have as strong of a familiarity with all of his individual film works like i said i mostly know the tv show and like this film a few little ones here and there that's why you need chuck chuck's did a rewatch last year i think that's crazy. and chuck remembers everything i bring up a movie and he's dropping quotes and i said how fuck do you remember that and chuck's like oh it's the greatest line in the yeah, movie and i say is it and he's like absolutely that's why i remembered it and i'm like i don't really <laughs> i don't have that power he does he has that ability i'm like i can't remember yesterday and chuck's like i haven't watched this movie since i was 10 and i remember every line of dialogue from it i tend to be that way but I don't remember like my day usually. <laughs> there you go. You two two fat heads with all the, your knowledge of movies Story, stuck yeah, in there. Up all that knowledge. So the other guy at work always says, "Chuck's got that photographic memory," and I always tell him, "No, it's just you're stupid. It's, it's not my memory. It's just you, you have a terrible." I hope you. Who do you talk to like that? Scott. Damn. <laughs> oh man. I, I don't feel stupid, but like I I guess I have the mindset of geniuses like alfred hitchcock or stanley kubrick where only the things that i remember are the most important things i'm fucking with you um but no some things like i can't remember exactly until i'm starting to see it so it has that weird you know how music works where if you hear a song it can transport you back to like another time in your head where you first heard it yeah movies work that way for me too when i'm watching yeah. something and then you know, like, 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 I can't this. really remember the plot, but once I start watching the movie, I'm remembering everything before it happens. You're I'm like, yeah, like I've okay, seen this, this but I don't know why I've seen this. <laughs> yeah. We we just watched She's All That, and I was like, I don't want to watch this movie. And then we start watching it, and I'm like, I, I've seen this movie. I'm like, I think I saw this in the theater. I remember this movie very I was like, I didn't even remember seeing this. I had no recollection of it, but as soon as like it started playing, I was like, 
Oh yeah, I definitely saw this like in a theater, like somewhere. Don't know why. Don't know what I was watching it for. Right, and it's like, look, look how hot I get. Yeah. Oh <laughs> shit, Sh- Jesus! You just gotta take your ponytail out, and then you'll be the hottest girl in school. See, I took off my glasses, and it's like it. It is funny. It's just like you lose <laughs> those glasses. We did the we did the not another teen movie. That was what we did for the fourth episode. Isn't that Chris that, Evans like first movie? Yeah. yeah, it was his first movie. And that's the joke in that movie is when the, the girl goes in to do the makeover on her. She goes, hold on. And she just pulls the thing out of her ponytail and takes her glasses off. And she goes downstairs and they start playing the she's so hot music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I do think and we brought it up and we'll bring it up again. And it kind of does, you accidentally said Shakespeare, but I feel like it would have, like, if you took Alfred Hitchcock out of his time and showed him some of the movies of today, I think he'd be really fucking jealous. Probably. Or maybe he'd be disappointed. He'd be like the next David Lynch. What are those little screens people are using? All those are phones. (laughs) And they're watching my movie on their phones? No, they don't know who you are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's a Um, big subject I push into on my show is trying to figure out what filmmakers can do to appeal to the millennial or I'm sorry, not the millennial, because that's all they do is appeal to us, the uh, Gen Z culture, because film is not for Gen Z. And so they're not interested in film. So I feel like one of the biggest problems uh, and I don't know why this feels like is a problem with a lot of things is they feel like they need to make things longer than they absolutely need to be. That's a big like problem. It's, it's, and I, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it is just like people getting like shorter attention spans or something. And I'll sit down for a long movie, but I just know there's people out there that uh, are probably even younger people that see like the Batman and they're like, two hours and 50 minutes? Like, you want me to sit in a theater for two hours and 50 minutes and watch a movie? Like, like really? I can't even I'm get up way. and like go to the bathroom in the middle of it. Like, I saw... Somebody had an article where they said, like, uh, we're calling for the uh, theaters and film companies to bring back the intermission. They're like, if you're going to start making these movies like three hours long, then you need to put an intermission back into the into the film. So I have a chance to, like, go to the bathroom in the middle of it. I honestly agree with that. And it's not attention span. It is literally like the last movie that I had that had that was that roadshow version of the hateful. Yeah, Eight. I remember that was like it was the 15 last minutes time, and yeah. it was so nice to get up and pee and just stretch your legs out <laughs> or some something. Food. Yeah. And it kind of rejuvenates you for the rest of the yeah. movie. It doesn't it helps the movie not feel super long. Yeah. And I don't understand why. You can't just add another 15 minutes just for well, that. We just covered My Fair Lady, and you were on the podcast with us when we did fucking West Side Story and whatever. Yeah, these which movies, is great. These movies are like, what, maybe two and a half hours long, which is like long by those standards, and they have intermissions. Every one of these like old like musicals. Fuck, the beginning like, of the movies are like five yeah, minutes of music. Yeah. Like, like it. It's just like what what happened? Like, how is it that back then they were willing to watch a two and a half hour long film? But they're like, okay, but you got to put a break in the middle, and now we're watching Avengers for like three and a fucking half hours. See, this—that's the only thing I hate about the whole runtime discussion. The time of the length of a movie doesn't matter as much as how interesting it is and how necessary it is. It's that's that's what it all is. Is like. I, I've said before there are a bunch of things that we talk about where I'm like, this would be better if you fleshed it out to two hours and expanded the story better than doing it so shortly. And then it's like on the other side of the coin, like you're over here taking like 
fucking Rambo and somehow maximizing it to like a two and a half hour. Like there isn't there isn't two and a half hours in fucking Rambo. Like it's an hour and 20 minutes of solid action. It's like Robert Evans said about The Godfather. Can we make it longer? I think it needs to be longer. (laughs) Like pacing matters. Pacing really does matter. I know people that like short attention spans. They can't take the the slow burn and that's fine. It's got to be interesting. It's got to hold you. But when they talk about something like the Batman, that's it's not that long. I think it's only like two forty something minutes long. Um, it uses its time wisely. It didn't feel long to me. One of my favorite movies, The Shining, is like two hours and forty minutes. Well, and then it never feels long to me. A good example of that, which is funny, is like Fast and the Furious Part Eight had excellent pacing. It was a very entertaining film and it's like two hours, 37 minutes and you're not bored. Everything is like flows really nicely. Whereas like fast nine that just came out, was like three fucking hours mm-hmm. long and it was so poorly put together. And like, I, I know that fast nine was uh, one of the worst ones I think in that well, franchise. Yeah. And it's like, these movies are, I'm not sitting here and calling these like masterworks, but like when you sit and you watch them, I'm like, they have cohesion, there's good storytelling and there's, they, they usually pace themselves very well overall. Whereas like this one just really, really fell apart. And it's like for a franchise that knows how to do that, they really drop the ball here. I don't think these superhero movies need these lengths. Like none of these do. This because this will go. I all mean, day. I don't know. It wasn't Spider Man uh No Way Home long and it didn't feel long to me. I didn't watch that but at yeah, all. Yeah, again, that's the difference. Like something like Eternals felt long. Like Eternals. Eternals felt did like feel long. Eternity. They could have cut a half hour out of that movie. Yeah. yeah. That one was way too long. And it when wasn't the pacing. It was just the fact that like that the beginning was just so unnecessary. When you're not familiar with a franchise that consists of like five or more main characters to compose the team, and you take like two hours to try to put all five characters together, that's when it fails too. Like you don't get the Avengers. You make Iron Man. You make Thor. You make this, and then you can stick them all together and make a two-hour film where they literally just blow buildings up for like the whole fucking movie, and you don't have to worry about like anything else. And that's all people want. They don't. Or you want do to things see like them. I think guardians of the galaxy was like a, per, a prime example of that's a good one you, you don't know any of these characters and we're going to give you enough that it feels right and that it feels like you know them and it's like within a two-hour runtime. and I, I don't think the second one's nearly as good but the villain's better i mean that they had a villain problem for a while where that's just like generic villain they're, they're finally getting over superhero movies are getting over generic origin story and generic villain I think they have to because I am really impressed with the longevity that people are still excited to see them. Yeah, you get the occasional person that's like, I I don't want to watch that. I don't want to see that. But you look at all the movies coming out next year and everyone's like, Black Adam, I'm so fucking pumped Mm. about that. And I was like, it's weird. I'm I'm glad we're finally at the the point where... (laughs) These films and the the universe of these films is so known that we've finally gotten a Spider-Man franchise where we did not have to see Uncle Ben get killed. We just knew that happened and we didn't even have to have that. And then we got a Batman film where we did not have to watch Thomas and Martha Wayne get shot for the 5,000th time because time. we just know that what that's what happened. Like We finally got to that point where it's like, Oh, you don't have to show that. People just know that's how Batman started. Like, you, you just don't even put that in your movie. I'm just happy that Starro got a fucking villain <laughs> role in a in a superhero film. Like, 
anybody who's willing to execute Starro in a film is a bold, bold person. I'm and like, see, that I wasn't not... familiar with that character, but I oh, like the kaiju Starro. aspect of it. I thought I was that was so great. excited to see Starro. I was like, fuck yes, this is my favorite DC villain. He's such an asshole. <laughs> I was like so unexpected and out of the blue. I'm like, all right, cool. Let's fucking rock Starro then. I mean, it's almost getting to the point, and it's funny. Uh, James Gunn's a prime example because he's getting like the the most obscure superheroes. It reminds me of Mystery Men. Like yeah. they could be made up heroes for all I know at this point. Not somebody that was pulled off of like one comic back in like 1974, and the villain never made another appearance again. When you talk about Gunn and you talked about Guardians, and you were like, Guardians is a much better team movie. The thing with Guardians and even like Suicide Squad is it's easier to stick a bunch of characters that you're not familiar with together when you're forced into a situation where you have to work together. So the backstories become irrelevant to the characters. And if you have familiarity, that's cool. But like they're actually, you'll learn about them as you go throughout the series. If there's more of them based on the fact that like they were forced into a situation where they were forced to work together. And once they've worked together and completed the initial objective, then from there on out, we'll learn about them. Whereas like when you do something with the Eternals, they were already a pre-established team and they had to get back together. But why did they get back together? Like, why do you care? I, and I honestly think care? that should have been the approach for that movie. It should have started in modern times and been like, we have to get back together and you learn the characters that way. Right. Uh, the Suicide Squad, though, I'm sure we'll get into it. But that was a movie where like I wasn't feeling the beginning. It just felt bad. But then when it was like, oh, these aren't the re- these aren't the characters that we're following. Uh, from that point on, I thought the movie was excellent. So I kind of like appreciated the opening more so. I mean, Gunn's background is in like the fucking trauma films and shit. So it's uh, like... he's clearly deeply inspired by Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, of course. I'm waiting for the Hitchcockian Marvel movie. I don't think that they've done it yet. Uh, they think they wanted to with Moon Knight and then gave up. I mean, I think that's the problem somebody brought up is that with the superhero movies, it's you you have to have some sort of extraordinary superpower uh, that makes you special. And the Hitchcock movies are are movies that like it's it, like I said, everyday man. It's a person that's like the most normal average person that they could be. So any person could fill that, that role. And um, to me, those are the best films. Yeah, I think it makes things more interesting, usually. Because you have to think about how you'd handle the situation. And since you are equal to the person that you're watching, you could probably handle the situation better or worse than them without, you know, going like, oh, like, you have to think about it the same way they have to think about it. So, And that's what Hitchcock does really well, too. Like, the characters have these weird skills that you don't think would pay off, but... yeah in this weird like espionage movie like it actually does help the character you know whatever they are maybe not so much jimmy stewart and the man who knew too much he was just a man he didn't even know too much he had to write it down i don't know i liked his note that hitchcock kept showing where i'm like that handwriting is so sloppy it is like it is a little difficult to read I hope it was Jimmy Stewart's writing. <laughs> Anyways, I think we're good here. I, I agree. Um, You've already talked about your podcast. Is there anything else that you want to plug, Lexi? Um, I've been making bad lowbrow art. 
I think I showed it to you. Um, that's on my Instagram icon. You did class. share an abortion tree with me. The abortion tree. That's the one I just made. <laughs> it's hard to explain it. Uh, <laughs> it uh, by Instagram is uh, I-C-O-N-O-K-L-A-S-T. Um, that's where I put my art. And then, of course, I'm the host of Oops, I Did It Again, a remake podcast. Um, you will be able to listen to that next month when Justin or Chuck will talk about it. Come on, and we'll talk about Alfred Hitchcock and his remakes, his terrible remakes. Well, some of them are terrible. Some of them are good. Um, yeah, I think that's all we got to pimp right now. Well, thanks for sharing. You reminded me a little bit of Diane Keaton in The Godfather. I had an abortion, Michael. An abortion. It was an abortion. <laughs> just so you know. It's hard to explain art. Do you know what an abortion is? Michael? Because that's what I had. Sound just like her, don't I? Chuck's like, I want to know what the abortion tree is. <laughs> I have no reference. Neither does anyone else listening. <laughs> that's, that is fair. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I thought I had a very good discussion, I think, for this episode. Good. Yeah, sorry, sometimes it does derail slightly, you know. But we, we, we wrapped it back around to Alfred Hitchcock, and we've got two more Alfred Hitchcocks before we move into our fourth director. And we don't even know what we're doing after our fourth director. Maybe we take a break, but we could, we could continue on with more directors. We could hit a new theme uh, it's very undecided we're, we're gonna go down to the wire before we decide what we want to do well if you ever cover harmony quarren lars von trees i'm here for it <laughs> i don't even know i have no idea like chuck brought up one director that i was like yeah i thought we could do that but i haven't even really had anyone else in my mind yet darren arnoski i'd definitely like to get him he's, he's my favorite i think we'd go real obscure like who's your favorite uh Canadian director. <laughs> Cronenberg is pretty good. But yeah, uh, me and Chuck were Cinema de More. Thanks for being on, Lexi. Um, at JJ Morgan 19 on Twitter. Chuck. Chuck Finn 66. Follow us for good time. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Cinema de More. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date with news and information on upcoming episodes. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Pandora, Alexa, or iHeartRadio. It would be greatly appreciated if you subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice. We also appreciate feedback, so rate us, review us, and let us know what you think. And above all else, thank you for listening.